This morning's reading continues in the book of Exodus, chapters 21 to 24. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and the children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye, and an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. 
but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or woman, the bull is to be stoned and the owner also is to be put to death. However, if payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures somebody, someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and take the dead animal in exchange. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it back or sells it, must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed, but if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution, but if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns sheaves of corn, or standing corn, or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbour silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which someone says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbour for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbour did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbour, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal the neighbour shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal.
read it for 24. Straight to 24? Straight to 24. Of course. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father. You've not left yourself unknowable. Thank you, Father, that through the Lord Jesus we may know the perfect representation of God. Thank you that uh, he reveals God to us perfectly. And we pray as we reflect on this revelation you make now, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. We ask for your Spirit's help as we try and manage uh, to to understand uh, these chapters. And we pray, Father, that you'll give us hearts that are ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, last week we saw that the book of Exodus is all about a relationship with God. See, all the plagues, all the dividing of the sea, all the standoffs with Pharaoh were aiming at this one aim, to bring God's people in relationship with God himself. And wonderfully, we saw what is true for the Israelites is also true for you and me. The moment we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we begin a relationship with God. But the question I want us to ask this morning is, what does that relationship look like for you? What difference does that make in your everyday lives? Sure, we know that we're saved from judgment, and that's a wonderful truth. But does that relationship do anything to us now? Perhaps we have this sense that actually it's all kind of future-focused, that the moment we meet God, well, we're safe from his judgment, but it kind of doesn't really affect our thinking day to day. Or maybe there's that still that kind of nagging uncertainty that God isn't quite happy with us. That actually, if we were to meet him, or what he thinks of us now is not what he says. And we wonder to ourselves, is he really happy with me? Is he really in relationship with me? Or I guess, and I, this happens to me uh, every now and again, we become kind of apathetic about our relationship with God. It doesn't make our hearts sing as it once did. Or maybe we are looking into the Christian claims and we're thinking to ourselves, is it even possible to have a relationship with God? It's one thing to say God exists. Another thing to say that we have a relationship with him now. That just seems very odd. Well, our passage this morning is all about showing us the significance of this relationship, what it does to our everyday lives. See, at the end of our chapters this morning, in chapters 24, God enters into a formal agreement with his people. He signs on the dotted line. And here we see what difference that signature makes. Now, we're going to look at um, uh, these points on the back of your service sheet. I'm afraid I've disagreed myself again. Please forgive me. I've put point one under point three. Uh, hopefully, this won't get too confusing. But first of all, we're going to look at the directions. Then we're going to look at the danger. Uh, then we're going to look at the destination. Then we're going to look at the deliverer. And I guess they probably don't mean much to us at the moment, but hopefully they will as we go through. So first of all, we see the directions. I guess as that passage was read, our attention was drawn to all the laws. And they just seem so unfamiliar to our world, don't they? There's laws about buying slaves, about putting bits of wood in people's ears, uh, what you're to do if your ox gores another animal or another person. And perhaps the judgments seem pretty harsh. Stoning an ox, stoning uh, a person who's let their ox go and gore somewhere, someone else. But actually, these laws show us something fundamental about our relationship with God. It shows us that our relationship with God should affect our everyday lives. Remember, last week we saw, didn't we, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments in Exodus are a bit like the headline for the law. They give us the principles. Uh, you get the four commandments at the top uh, about how we're to relate to God, and then the six commandments that follow about how we're to relate to one another. 
And after that chapter, chapter 20, we get into the kind of um, application of those Ten Commandments. And so we see how um, you're not meant to steal, how you're to treat other people's property. Uh, You see there's laws about altars, how we're to worship God, uh, not breaking the first commandment. Uh, There's laws about how you conduct court cases so you don't lie. Uh, Remember the commandment not to be a false witness. Now, of course, when we get to this, these laws are very different to 21st century Basingstoke. But we can see, can't we, that actually these laws govern the whole of the Israelites' lives. It wasn't that God just cared about their spiritual part. It wasn't that he just wanted them to pray a prayer and then get on with the rest of their lives. He didn't want them just to worship on a Sunday or a Saturday. He wants them to be 24-7 Yahweh followers. I remember last week we saw, didn't we, in chapter 19, that God calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And here he's spelling out how they're to be a holy nation, how they're to reflect God's character. And holiness is not something you just do in kind of religious places or on a religious day. Holiness is seen in the family home. It's seen in the neighborhood. It's seen in the workplace. I'll tell you about you, I find it very easy to have a wall in my head between Sunday and Monday, or at least I used to, now I'm in church seven days a week. But I used to think that kind of God was interested in that kind of spiritual bit of me. And actually, my, my thinking didn't really change in the, in the home or in the office. But actually, as you look at this, you realize that God calls us to holiness across the whole of our lives. He doesn't just want a relationship and then leave us untouched. He is, as Jefferson reminded us at the beginning, making us into the image of Christ, making us holy, bringing our relationship to bear on all areas of our lives. Now, I guess some of us will ask, how do we do that? I mean, do we start having to buy oxes and checking that they don't gore people? Do we have to get fields, that type of thing? Well, let me just say a couple of things on this. Now, this this is probably going to be the most technical bit. Um, If you just think, I could could do without this, I'll tell you when to come back in. Uh, But for those who are interested, I think I just want to do a little bit on these laws. See, first of all, it's worth emphasizing (coughs) that we're not under the law as Christians. We're not under the law. See, it's not that we have to live verbatim what's written here. And in fact, if you and me take away from this that we have to do this list and then God will be pleased with us, well then actually we would not only fail, but we miss the whole good news about the Christian faith. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 3, I think it's on your screens, that for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that means made right in his sight. Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So the law here is not a ladder to climb up to God. It is a mirror that reflects the true nature of our hearts. But that said, we're not under the law, but the New Testament shows that actually the law has a continuing relevance. Uh, Jesus says, of course, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And Paul, when he's arguing that you should pray, uh, play, uh, sorry, pay for your church leaders, uh, he says this, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So he's making an application to people like me, to clergy, just like an ox, you wouldn't put a muzzle on, the ox is free to eat as they um, go around treading the grain, I should be free to eat, um, metaphorically, <laughs> as I tread out the grain, uh, that kind of idea. But you see the point, he's taken it from the law of Moses. Now, how do we square those two ideas that we're not under the law, we're not made right through the law, but also the law has some relevance? Well, the key word to take away is the word fulfill. See, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And Paul says this uh, to the Roman church, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, what does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, to fulfill something, and I told you this was going to get technical, is for something to reach its goal, its intended end. Now, imagine for a second that uh, you're training for a marathon, and I'm not speaking from experience here, uh, but I imagine that if you train for a marathon, I know some of us have, so you can come and correct me, we, we set up exercise routines. We go on a strict diet. I guess for months off the actual marathon itself, we plan all this kind of routine we're going to go through. Now, those routines, those laws, those rules, those diet plans are not the end. The end is the marathon, or rather the end is reaching the the end of the marathon, the 26.2 mile mark. And so if you're speaking to someone training on a cold January morning and say to yourself, why are you running uh, on a cold January morning? They would say, well, it's to get to the goal of the end of the marathon. See, the training on the cold January, is fulfilled in the reaching of the goal. And it's similar with the law. The law is fulfilled in Christ. It reaches its goal in him. I've put a diagram on your sheets. Hopefully this will help kind of spell it out in your mind. See, the, the whole goal of the law was to love God and love one another. And what we have in Exodus is an expression of that love for God and love for one another, and we'll get on to that in a moment. But it's not the fulfillment, it's not the end, this is just the training program. See, the expression of that love and love uh, for God and love for one another is in Christ. He only lived to love God and love his neighbor. And it's only by faith in him that we join ourselves to him, and so we're made right with God. But here's the thing, it doesn't mean that we look back on the law and think it doesn't have any relevance to us. See, by the Spirit and looking back to Christ, we fulfill the law. We bring about its intended goal. Now, if you've tuned out, this is the important bit to come in because the church is hugely significant. Because the church, God's people, is the very place the law is lived out, it's fulfilled not in a way to earn our salvation, but to love God and love one another. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, after spelling out very clearly to them that they're not under the law, he says this, bear one another's burdens 
So fulfill the law of Christ. See, the church is a family where we bear one another's burdens. We lift one another up. And as we do that, well, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. We're fulfilling the intended goal of the law. So coming back to the actual laws we've got here, this is not kind of a kind of blueprint for how we're to conduct our lives in 21st century Basingstoke. Rather, they show us how we're to love. And so let me give you one example of that played out. Um, Turn to chapter 23, uh, verse 10, with me. It says here, For six years you should sow your land and gather in its yields, uh, yield, but in the seventh year you should let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. Uh, you're to do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Now, I'm guessing none of us have got fields. Uh, there may be one or two, but probably not the majority. Uh, if you've got a vineyard, I want to be friends with you. Uh, or if you've got an olive orchard, I guess. Um, but the point isn't if you've got one of these fields. The point is how you use those things for the sake of others. See, the seventh year, see what it look, look at what it says, verse 11. The seventh year, you let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. So every um, once in seven years, the field is allowed, um, is, is kind of left alone so that poor people can go and eat from it. And so here we see that, yes, there's kind of rights to private property. It's not communism. But God cares about the poor. God cares about the vulnerable. And he doesn't make private property a kind of absolute right. His people are to be generous with their resources. And of course, we see that generosity demonstrated most of all in Jesus. But also in the New Testament church, as the the church of Jerusalem sold fields and gave their property for their brothers and sisters. See the point? This relationship with God is not just Monday uh, not just Sunday, it's Monday to Saturday as well. It's to infect, uh, sorry, wrong word, it's to affect our office, our Zoom calls, the building site, the coffee shops, our friendships. See, in that God loves, wants us to love him and love our neighbor as ourselves. But why would I do this, you might ask? Uh, Why would I look at these laws? Why would I take these seriously? Well, um, secondly, or a third point, uh, we see here that the blood of the covenant comes into play. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, chapter 24 begins with a ceremony. And it's the sort of ceremony that, if you're a bit queasy, you probably want to put your fingers in your ears at this point. Because Moses kills some oxen, and then we read in chapter 24, verse 6, what he does with the blood. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and he does mean basins, and he, half the blood he threw against the altar. And then verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made in accordance with all these words. Now notice this isn't just a few drips of blood. This is not kind of painting blood on the doorpost like in the Passover. Uh, the word here is swung. Moses swung the blood. It's, uh, he's throwing it over the, the people. And um, it's a pretty gruesome sight, isn't it? 
Half goes on the altar, half goes on the people. And imagine this is the Middle East, this is hot. Uh, what it must have smelled like, what it must have been like. You might think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound kind of very cozy. It doesn't sound very relational uh, with God. But actually, it shows us the strength of commitment here. I don't know if you've heard of um, Tony Wilson, who was the owner of Factory Records, uh, who signed bands, oh, we've got a couple of nods, uh, bands like the Happy Mondays, Joy Division. Well, when Tony Wilson signed Joy Division, he was so enthralled with their music that he wrote a contract out in blood, and I'm sorry if you are squeamish. See, Joy Division said to them, we, we'll only sign a contract to you, with you uh, if we say you've got no rights over us, we can walk whenever we want, and you write it in your own blood. And so he, you know, cut himself and to, started writing this contract out, and I guess after a few fainting fits, managed to sign it. Now, it's a weird story, and uh, it's not the thing that's recommended, but it does show Tony Wilson's commitment to Joy Division, doesn't it? He would do anything just to sign them. And this ceremony here does something similar, that it shows God's commitment to his people, so much so that there's blood involved. Now, why the blood? Well, when a covenant is made, a death is to take place. And this blood symbolizes what happens if you break the covenant. Notice half the blood goes on the altar, half the blood goes on the people, and it's to symbolize the two parties in this covenant. If God breaks his side of the bargain, well, his blood will be demanded. But if the people break their side of the bargain, their blood will be demanded. And just think about that for a second. Think about how God commits to his people. It's not a half-hearted sort of whim. It's not just a half-hearted desire. He commits in his own blood. See, a covenant is all about giving you and me assurance that God is really for us. It's very easy to think, well, God kind of loves me, but he might change my mind or I might screw up some way and he'll go back on his word. But God never does that. He uh, commits himself to you by his blood. Now, what difference should that make? What difference uh, does that make in my um, everyday experience to know that? Well, looking at point three, or point one rather, we see the destination of this covenant. See, remember where we were last week? We were at the mountain in Sinai, and the cloud came down on the mountain, and there was thunder and thick darkness, and the people were terrified. But now, it all changes. Look at what they're doing in chapter 24. In verse 1, God calls them up to the mountain, and then um, Aaron's called, his sons are called, and there are 70 elders representing the people. They go up to the mountain, and look at what they did. Chapter 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, And 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And notice this. And they saw God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, 
they beheld God and ate and drank. See, it's a complete contrast, isn't it? Last week, the people didn't want to go anywhere near the mountain. They screamed out to Moses, you speak to us, we don't want to hear God. And now where are they? Well, they're having a picnic on the mountain with God. See, verse 11 is incredible, isn't it? We're told they ate and drank. Now, you might know this, but in Jewish culture, to eat and drink with someone is the ultimate symbol of friendship, of a bond. It's why Jesus got into so much trouble eating with the so-called outcasts of the day. See, when covenants are made, they would be frequently followed with a meal. That happens with Abraham and his visitors in Genesis. And I guess we still do that in a wedding, don't we? We have the covenant, the agreement's made, and then we celebrate in a a wedding breakfast. I don't know why they call it breakfast, but uh, a wedding lunch. And you stuff yourself silly, you think, I'm never going to eat again, and then the evening buffet comes out, and you think, well, yeah, okay, I'll maybe have a few things. And the point is that this covenant's been made, and here's the results that they're in God's presence. They can be with him. They ate and drank. Now, remember where the Bible starts. It starts in Eden, doesn't it? And this reference to sapphire stones and uh, the floor being like the heavens is a kind of echo of what Eden looked like. And now it's the same again. We're back to Eden. People can be in God's presence and he will not destroy them. And it's what you and me are made for, ultimately. See, God has made us and he has called us, not because he needs us, not for just some group of people, but he wants us to know him and for him to know us. And here we get a wonderful glimpse of that taking place. And the truth is that we are in the same position as them, I love this passage. I I look back at it uh, now quite often because it just gets my whole imagination going. What must the sapphire patio uh, look like? Uh, What must it have been like to eat and drink? What exactly did they see of God? But actually, the truth is that I am in their position right now. Uh, Hebrews says this in chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help to help in time of need. See, the throne he's speaking about there is God's throne. And notice what he says. He says, draw near with confidence or boldness. It's just the way children, it doesn't matter who their parents are, how important they are, they will always bound up to them. And it's that kind of image here, that because we're in relationship, we're in covenant with God, you and me can have absolute confidence, boldness in approaching him. I wonder, do we see that this morning? Often we talk, don't we, about um, quiet times, having a quiet time with God, and it sounds so nice, so quaint. Um, I don't mean to diss um, quiet times. I have a quiet time myself uh, every morning, but it kind of just sounds so so kind of trivial, so kind of so as I say, quaint. But actually, do we see it quite like Hebrews puts it, being in the throne room of God? Yes, I'm in my room or on my sofa reading the Bible, praying, but actually, it's an act of drawing near, 
with confidence like the people on the mountain. But I guess lots of us will ask the question, how do we know that? I mean, it doesn't feel like we're in the throne room of God. I mean, as nice as this building is, it doesn't feel that way. But as we see in our final point, that actually we can be absolutely confident this is right and this is what the case is. See, notice what's stressed throughout uh, chapter 24. Uh, I'll read it out. See if you can uh, listen out for the repeated idea. Chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And verse 7, when he makes the covenant. Then he took the blood of the, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. See, it's, you see it, don't you? All, all these words, all these things we will be obedient to. See, it's reminding us that the people were absolutely convinced that they would be obedient to every part of this law. And it's not just that God signed up uh, to this deal on his own. So did the people. They weren't arm-twisted. It was all voluntary. But they wholeheartedly said, we're going to obey these laws at the price of our blood. And what's a wonderful moment is also a terrifying moment. Because here the people commit to obeying the Lord at the price of their blood. We know if we read on, even in Exodus, but also the the whole of the Bible, that their obedience wasn't anywhere close to what they committed here. And it's hard not to read these words, this confidence, thinking, what have you done? What have you committed to? It's because their blood should have been demanded. They broke his laws. They did not obey. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbor. And there's no sense in which we can look at them thinking we're better. Jesus exposes our own hearts in his Sermon on the Mount, telling us that we've not loved God, not loved our neighbor. And that leaves us in a terrifying position because we love to know God. We love to be known by him But he demands holiness. And to commit to him is a big deal. It means potentially costing our own blood. See, what is a wonderful moment here is also a terrifying moment as the people commit. But wonderfully, God makes another covenant. He makes a new covenant. See, Jesus came. He lived this law perfectly. He loved God going off to pray to his father, to do his father's will. He cared for the vulnerable. He cared for the outcasts, accused of being a friend of sinners. And when Jesus goes to his death, he holds a meal, and his disciples eat and drink with him. And he says this, he took the cup, and after supper he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Notice what he says, it's a new covenant, but in my blood. See, it wasn't in his disciples' blood. His disciples 
were not there when he needed them most. You'll remember after this meal, Peter talks about how he's going to obey God, how he's going to be at Jesus' side. But what happens at the first sign of trouble, he falls away, and Jesus is left alone to stand obedient to his Father's will. And Jesus walks, too, to the mountain, not to Mount Sinai, but to Golgotha, the mount outside Jerusalem. And there, as Jesus was fully obedient to his Father, he offered his own blood, not on the altar of Moses, but on a cross of wood. And by doing so, he offered his blood in the place of ours, so that we can come into God's presence with absolute confidence, the confidence these people showed, not because of our obedience or our ability to keep these laws, but because of Christ and what he's done. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead, uh, from dead works to serve the living God. He says, look, look, the blood of Christ has been offered. And here's the conclusion. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, I know that's technical, but the point is what we've seen already, that when God enters into a covenant, he demands blood, and if we break it, our blood will be demanded. But Hebrews is saying Jesus has already died. He's already offered his blood, and so that we need not fear coming into his presence. As we close, I wonder, do we see that this morning? Do we see how our relationship with God shapes the everyday? We've seen it should shape us every day in the way we live, that we reflect his holiness in our love of him and our love for one another. We see that that relationship is not just a kind of casual arrangement, it is uh, signed in blood. And at the end here, we've seen that it's not ultimately our obedience that means we can dwell with God. A question I've asked myself is, where am I in Exodus? Remember chapter 19, the people were terrified, and in chapter 24, the people are eating and drinking in God's presence. And as we've seen, Hebrews would tell us that we are closer to chapter 24 than chapter 19. But quite often, I live as if I'm in chapter 19, that I fear what God might think of me. Perhaps when I've messed up, when I've shouted at the kids, where I've had a run-in at work, and I feel my failure, I feel like I'm going to be in chapter 19. But actually, because of Christ and what he's done, we are in chapter 24 and await that day in the future. Let's pray. They saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Our gracious and 
Wonderful, Father, we praise you for your great desire to dwell with your people. Thank you, Father, that you have made the way for that to take place. And we praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus who has established this new covenant with us. Please help us, Father, not to lean on our own understanding, our own obedience, but to trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. And please give us every confidence, as Hebrews says, that we may enter into your presence, that we may be with you now. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to try the Q&A session, Rob, aren't we? So let me just grab the, the iPad that I was given. So, so you remember at the start we said that we were going to be asking people to submit uh, questions. We have got a number, so... Oh, good. Yeah, good, right. So, um, quite a number, actually. In fact, we've had quite a few <laughs> late submissions by the looks of it. So let's, How long well, have we got? <laughs> that's good, right. So, Thank you um, for your questions, by the way. That's really good, isn't it? So, um, and these are in the these are in the order of how many people have, have voted for that as well. So, just to, um, so we'll start with the ones that got the most votes on. So, and the first one that's on here it says, um, with reference to what you were speaking about uh, just now from the passage, these laws are specific and wide ranging. How much did they contrast with the culture at that time? And then in brackets it says to illustrate, it says, i.e. creating a noticeably different set of standards that set God's people apart. Yeah, good question. So um, you may, and the question may be getting at this, you may be aware that this is not the only piece of ancient law we've got, um, that there's a law code of Hammurai um, around and some others. Uh, so, but the difference is, uh, and it's not that those laws don't talk about similar things they do, but the difference is um, they're built on a, a different understanding of who God is, and this is very different. Uh, this is loyalty to, to the one God, Yahweh, and uh, to reflect that in the, all of their lives. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think it, it wouldn't have been different in the sense of and it's worth just, sorry, let me just worry back a bit. It's worth just saying that I guess some of us read this and think, why are there laws about slaves? Surely slavery is a bad thing, and it is. Um, why are there laws about um, stoning? You know, Jesus said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. So, um, you know, some of these laws don't seem to kind of have the social transformation we might expect by the time we get to Jesus. Uh, and it's worth saying that, that that wasn't the purpose of the law. God works despite people's sin at this point. He doesn't work to kind of transform the whole society through that law. So, um, yeah, so in some ways, it's not the kind of end goal, as I said, uh, but in other ways, they would have been very different to nations in the sense they had one God, Yahweh, and um, yeah, let me just shall I give you an example on that. Mm, so just just show you one cha- uh, difference. Um, in chapter 23, verse 9, he says, uh, you're not to oppress uh, a sojourner, a foreigner. Um, that means someone without kind of property and things who's uh, in the land. Um, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that's a difference of this law code uh, from the world around them, that actually because they were slaves, they're not to mistreat 
people who are vulnerable because they know what it's like. Okay, so some, some significant differences, is there? Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, second question. Um, if we are, as Christians, no longer under the law, do the Ten Commandments still apply to us? Yes, I think, but it depends what you mean apply. Um, if you mean apply in the sense of reading and doing exactly as they say without looking outside the context of the whole Bible, I don't think they apply in that way, but I think they apply in the sense of what I've said, that we look forward to Christ, and actually as we look at Christ and what he says about Ten Commandments, we realise they're even greater than we perhaps expected. So just to give you an example on that, one, one of the commandments is to not murder, but obviously when Jesus gets to the Sermon on the Mount, he says to people, it's not just about not killing someone, which I guess most of us haven't done, um, but actually it's about harbouring thoughts in your, in, uh, it's about harbouring evil thoughts about your brother or sister. Um, and actually that just implicates all of us, doesn't it? Because who of us has been cut up on the road and thought something pretty bad about the person who's done that? Um, so Jesus, in a way, ups the ante. He shows us what the true meaning of the commandments were. It wasn't just about not murdering. It was about actually loving your neighbour. And, um, and Jesus then goes on to show us what that looks like. So, yes, we've always got to kind of... I, I, I think in terms of timelines, and you can see that in the diagram, I try and think I'm looking back on the Ten Commandments, but I'm not looking straight back on them. I'm looking through Christ and then back on them. So I think as he's lived them, I live them. Um, but he's lived them on my behalf. Does that help? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, by the way, I'm saying that on behalf of whoever <laughs> submitted the question. So if whoever did submit the question thinks not, then please do uh, submit, submit. Yeah, so it. we're not to get the Ten Commandments to go, oh, that's, that's it. We're to go, I want to be like Christ and I want to image him. And the Ten Commandments are an illustration of how to do that. Okay, good. That is clear. Um, the next one, actually, I think you've partly addressed with your first answer, but I'll repeat it anyway. So it says, was God endorsing slavery as a social construct by making provision for it in the law? Yeah, so I think just say similar to what I said, um, I think it is quite difficult to read the laws about slavery and think that's condoning slavery, and I don't think it ever does, but I think it recognises the reality of that community at that point was that it was a, a world built on slavery, I think. 80% of people were in kind of peasant class, people very poor, and the way you would go about employment was to be in slavery to people. Um, and obviously, by the time we get to the New Testament, um, actually, the, the, there's a critique of slavery. So um, Paul names slave traders in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as um, people who break God's law. Uh, and, um, yeah, so, yeah, so that's one example... Um, and obviously, the church has fought to get rid of the um, slavery we uh, uh, that um, happened uh, a few centuries ago. So um, it's worth just saying that that isn't a kind of equivalent of the slavery we um, imagine today. Mm. Uh, we think back to the slavery of 200 years ago, the barbaric kidnapping of um, many people and uh, taking them to be slaves. It wasn't quite like that. Um, but, uh, but God isn't kind of doing a social complete transformation at this point. He's trying to think how... He's trying to say, actually, you're to love your slaves, you're to treat them well um, in that context. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Next one. Is it a good thing to dwell on our future in this life when we already have everything in God? It says joined together through the new covenant in Christ. Shall I repeat that? Yeah, just repeat the first bit. Yeah, it says, is it a good thing to dwell on our future in this life? Yes. When we already have everything in God, it says, joined together through the new covenant in Christ. Yeah, so the short answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, Paul uh, and the New Testament gets us to set our horizons onto the future and the future eternity to come. Um, Absolutely. And wonderfully, we know, um, yeah, so just, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, do mull on the future, do reflect the future. And I think part of the difficulty of living in the West with our relative um, wealth and healthcare and all those sorts of things, which are wonderful gifts, but the danger is that we focus too much on this world and um, lose our sense of uh, eternity. That said, and I think the question's kind of getting at this, it's not that all, this, all these promises are saved up for one day in the future. So that new covenant is made now. Um, we're already in relationship with God. We've already got absolute confidence to come into the throne room of God because of Christ. Uh, and so that's repeated throughout that actually eternal life, in a sense, has started now, and death will be uh, just a kind of... Um, a kind of blip on that process of eternity. Um, so, yes, absolutely think about the future, but don't let that f- focus on the future make you think that nothing's to come. Um, it's worth just saying that the future day, and I didn't have time for this, uh, Revelation 21 is, uh, is the only place where sapphire comes up in the New Testament, interestingly. Um, God finally comes to be with his people as heaven and earth meet. Uh, and so what we have in God now We live by faith. We don't see it, but one day we will. Ah, okay. Um, Next one, it says, how can we be reassured of God's promises? Yes. Um, So God gives us words and he gives us signs. um, And... his words are enough to be trusted. So he reassures us by, by doing this, by hearing his words, hearing them proclaimed. And each time we come here on a Sunday, um, yes, we're hearing from different preachers, but ultimately those preachers should be pointing us to God who's given us his words week in, week out. And um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You've come to church, you've had a, a bad week, and just something in the sermon or something someone said has just gripped you. And reassured you. So God reassures us through his word, uh, but that word is always pointing us back to Christ and what he's already done for us. Uh, and so someone calls it um, spiritual amnesia. We, we often suffer from spiritual amnesia, that it's not that we uh, need something. We've already got it in Christ. The covenant's been made, the blood has been spilt, uh, the deal's been signed, and, and the job of kind of um, the preacher is to kind of uh, and, and, and church services and things like that is to point us back to that finished work of Christ. Now, just say on that, um, I guess I didn't have time to mention this either, but communion mm. is a, a kind of physical word with which, with, with which God reassures us as well. So as we take communion, again, we're pointing back to Christ and what he's achieved. Uh, he's reassuring us 
as we eat the bread and drink the wine, or as okay. we long to do that. Okay, good. I might just say, so, and if, whoever submitted this one, if that's, if we've covered what you meant, great. If not, if it might be things to do with, I don't know, things like evidence, of, uh, evidence for the Bible or evidence for things that Jesus did in the New Testament, maybe submit it again next week. Yeah, right. absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah or email make this into yeah, a dialogue if we need to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, last one here, it said, um, it says, God must have known that people would disobey even when they promised that they, it says would, that they wouldn't. It would be. So it, it, God, it's a question. It says, God must have known that people would disobey even though they promised that they were going to obey him. So uh, that's how it's phrased. I'm wondering if it means, so, so, um, so, so either why didn't he allow for that or did he allow for that or something like that. That was the phrasing of the question. Yeah, I'm not sure what the question means, but um, I'll give it a go. Uh, thank you for sending it. Uh, yeah, so it's true. God does know uh, everything. He's not kind of, it didn't catch him by surprise that the people disobeyed the covenant. Um, that doesn't mean the people weren't culpable, and it doesn't mean that the people weren't entering in voluntarily. Um, you'll see that they seem very voluntarily sort of saying we're going to uh, obey all of these laws. Um, Yes, so, but God, God did know he didn't catch him out by surprise. And, and why that's helpful is because it's not like Jesus was kind of plan B. It's not like he thought, well, this covenant might work. Oh, no, it's not. Well, I better do a new covenant. Actually, the whole of history was heading towards this new covenant uh, that Jesus made. But without doing the old covenant and without seeing what Israel's experience is, we wouldn't know why Jesus and the new covenant is so rich and so important. Um, Jesus doesn't come at Genesis 4. He comes way after that, precisely to show us why he's needed. Uh, so I hope that answers the question. But thank you so much for everyone's questions. There was, some, there was a really good variety, wasn't there? Yeah, actually. really, yeah. I really enjoyed it a hard time, but good. yeah, great. Thank you thank very much. You. Thanks, Rob.